Today's episode is brought to you by Geico. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work, but you know, what's easy bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's insurance or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing too, because you already have so much to do around the house. Go to Geico.com, get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. And we thank them for sponsoring today's podcast. All right. I want to run a timeout right now to talk about our man, Alexander over in Parkersburg, West Virginia. You know, we get this question all the time here on the show. Hey, can save with Conrad.com help me buy a house or is it only for homeowners? We can absolutely help you buy a house at SaveWithConrad.com. Just ask Alexander. He left us a 4.67 star review, which if you've been listening to this show or reading the observer, you know, that means things went pretty, pretty, pretty good. Here's what Alexander had to say in his review. David and Diane were absolutely outstanding to deal with. They made sure I knew every step along the way, very clear directions as to what I needed to do as a first time home buyer. And I couldn't be happier with the home. I ended up purchasing 10 out of 10 experience with first family. By the way, I want to mention briefly first family really is my family. Mom's the office manager. Dad's helping families get into brand new homes. Of course, I got my sister preparing the closing packages. My cousin is going to help take your applications. First family is real. And my family wants to help your family get into a new house. That's right. Save with Conrad.com can get you in a house for less than your current rent. Why would you continue to build your landlord's wealth? It's time to do something for yourself. And don't think if maybe you had a credit mishap before that is going to exclude you from home ownership. We're routinely helping families just like yours get into a house with no money down and no money out of pocket. You can do this right now at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Oh, and did I mention one of the benefits of home ownership is not only that your house is probably going to appreciate over time and you're going to start to build wealth for your family, not only will you finally have something of your own and you don't have to ask permission to do something to the house, but most importantly, you're going to get a great big old tax deduction for the interest you pay on your house. Hypothetically, how much money does your landlord give you back when you file your taxes? Uh-uh telling you, you got to go to savewithconrad.com and realize that dream of home ownership for your family with my family, savewithconrad.com. Ladies and gentlemen, I can't believe it. We are in the last week of July already, and before you know it, the kids will be back in school and the summer will be over. But what's not over is the value you continue to have access to over at adfreeshows.com. It's full steam ahead and with your favorite podcasts early and ad-free, plus those can't-miss interactive experiences and all the bonus content. Just this month alone, the ad-free show's members were treated to extra content with Kurt Angle discussing his last match in WWE against Sabu prior to joining TNA. Then JR stopped by and relived Hulk Hogan's iconic heel turn at Bash at the Beach. Then we had Eric Bischoff grace us with his presence to watch along as Cactus Jack battled Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff in a Falls Count Anywhere four-star match. 
and you don't want to miss what Eric had to share about the very talented Mr. Wonderful. So do it now. Sign up and begin working your way through the archives. We have both audio and video options, so whether you're back to commuting or have time to relax on the couch with your favorite mobile device, it's all available at your fingertips right now over at adfreeshows.com. It's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am just, I'm grateful to be alive today. It's a great day. I'm excited. There's a lot of stuff going on. Happy to be here doing my my favorite thing each and every week, 83 Weeks with you, Conrad. I'm having a blast. Man, I am too, and I'm excited about today because today is a little different We've really been celebrating the 25th anniversary of the NWO, and we're going to get back to it. But first, we're going to throw you guys the keys to the show. You're in charge. What do you want to talk about? If you could ask Eric anything, what would it be? So we solicited your questions on social media and, of course, over at adfreeshows.com. Eric, we've got hundreds of questions. There's no way we'll get to them all. But let's jump into it. Uh, Brent from adfreeshows wants to know, if Vern had given you the keys to the AWA and total control of the company in 1989, what things could you have done to give the promotion a chance? Not necessarily to quote unquote, compete with Vince, but more to reestablish the territory as viable. You know, it, it wasn't about having great question, by the way, Brent, thank you for it. It really wasn't about choices that could have been made or, or anything. It, it wasn't that Vern didn't know how to do what he needed to do to, to remain viable. Now competing with Vince, as Brett pointed out, that's a whole different conversation. Yeah. That takes a different way of thinking that, that requires a different vision that, and Vern would have never, never done that. I probably could have never convinced Vern to do it, but even if I could have, it was about money, you know, Vern just didn't have the resources. So it, Vern could have given the keys, so to speak, to anybody. Um, but in the situation that Vern was in at that time, uh, financially, and with just, you know, calling it like it is, Vince did a great job of, I hate to use the word stealing. He didn't steal anybody, but Vince gutted the local territories and the, the, the talent that was left by the time I got to AWA, when I first started in 1987, nobody could have done anything with that talent. Right. It just what it wasn't. It was all new talent that nobody had ever heard of for the most part. And there's nothing I or anybody else could have done to probably change ultimately what was, you know, the fate of AWA. So I appreciate the question, but especially back then, if you would have handed me the keys, I, I, I would have lost them. <laughs> I wouldn't, have, <clears throat> I wouldn't have known what to do with them. 
Do you believe, and I know this sounds silly, but I'm sure some of our listeners would probably say, well, well, Eric, if, if Vern didn't have the resources, meaning cash, couldn't you come up with an idea to create the cash? I've always been under the impression that wrestling for whatever reason is certainly one of those businesses where, as they say, it takes money to make money. You agree with that, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, realistically, yeah, you can start a local promotion, a regional promotion on a shoestring and kind of, you know, over time, kind of work your way up and and become a little bigger and a little more viable and expand your territory. But especially in the late eighties, as cable would take cable television was really heating up because of what Vince did. I mean, Vince was responsible for heating up cable television, but with regard to the wrestling industry, you know, all eyes were on TV and all eyes were on cable television. And there's just no way to get into that business without a substantial amount of, of money behind you. So now I think, you know, I think Vern's fate was sealed um, by a combination of Vince McMahon having an extraordinary vision at absolutely the perfect time, being very aggressive about how he wanted to execute on that vision. And on the flip side, you had Vern who was stubborn and, and, and believed that the way that wrestling will be successful is the way that it was successful in the sixties and the seventies and the early eighties before cable really became a thing. Um, he was too stubborn. Even if he would have had the money, I hate saying this cause I love Vern so much and respect him so much, but even if Vern would have had a hundred million dollars in a bank, I don't think he would have made the right moves or allowed the right moves to be made by someone underneath him because he was so firmly entrenched in the idea that wrestling should be what it has always been. And, you know, Vern wasn't alone that way. Bill Watts was that way. I mean, on some level, even Vince McMahon is, and that's why he keeps hiring people like Nick Khan around him. Right. Well, yeah, but see Vince, but this is the fascinating thing about Vince is that he is, I mean, I see some stubborn traits and certainly anybody that's spent more than five minutes with him knows that he can be a very stubborn guy. Um, he is very, very, Vince is very entrenched in his way of doing things. And we see that manifest creatively. You see the results of that. Um, but at least Vince, I think, acknowledges it and surrounds himself with people that will at least attempt to push him. Vern didn't do that. Vern had Greg. Right. And a few others around him that thought very much like Vern did. So there was no, there was no, Hey Vern, what about this? Let's give this a shot. I know you love doing things the way you've been doing them. I love, I know, I know the kind of stories you like, the kind of characters you like, the kind of finishes you like, but what if we mix it up just a little bit? There was nobody pushing Vern in that direction. Um, and without somebody pushing you to expand your choices and your creative palette, you end up just doing the, a different version of the same thing over and over and over again. And, and Vince, to his credit, um, whether it's running his business, you know, I, I think one of the things, and I don't think Vince, we all talk about Vince in terms of, you know, what we see on television and choices that he's made and talent issues and things like that. But if what I'm fascinated by is how much 
success Vince has had on the business side of things Mm -hmm. by surrounding himself with the best of the very best. And that's, I think has a lot more to do Vince's willingness to let other people run the business side of his business. He still has control over those decisions, but he surrounds himself with some really smart people. And Nick Khan is one of them. All right, Eric, we got to run a timeout right now to talk about one of our new great sponsors, something that has affected both my life and your life. Here's a heads up though. CBD isn't about what you feel. It's about what you don't feel specifically pain, stress, anxiety. In fact, it can even help with nervousness and sleeplessness and feels is a better way to feel better. Feels is a premium CBD that will help you keep your head clear and feel your best. It's hassle-free and it's delivered directly to your door. Now, Eric, I know you and I have both been using feels for a little bit. What has been your experience thus far? I absolutely love the product and to be transparent, I was a little cynical at first and only because I've tried different CBD oils and I, I, I guess I've experienced a range of eh to this is a joke. I've never and, and they were like the over-the-counter stuff that you get at your local drugstore or whatever, you know, convenience store, you know, not quality product. Um, but that was my initial experience. It was just kind of, eh, whatever, another gimmick. And then when I got the product feels shipped to my home to try, um, I was excited because I was hoping that there was going to be a product out there that lived up to the expectations that I've kind of developed over the years listening to talk about it. Now, I'm going to, again, in all transparency, I have no aches or pains. I'm fortunate I don't have issues like that. I do have an issue, however, being able to sleep. Yep. And and I just, part of it is because I drink too much coffee during the day. Part of it is just the way my brain is wired, whatever. But um, I, the first night I tried it, I took the recommended dose. So I tried to put it under my tongue, went to bed. I didn't move rest of the night deepest sleep i can remember having how do you feel the next day perfect that was the (laughs) best part you know because you can do a lot of things to help you and you're not actually sleeping you're passing out i'm not talking about drinking too much or things like that but you can take over the counter sleep aids yeah and i've tried them all you know melatonin I used to try melatonin to solve my issues and I'd wake up and my head felt like a bucket of wet cement and it took me half a day to be able to become reasonably functional again. But with feels, I go, I I relax. I go to sleep right away. I stay in a deep sleep. I go into what's called a REM state, rapid eye movement in your sleep. And you know, you're in a deep sleep when you have very vivid and colorful dreams. That's how I know it works for me. And I absolutely love the product. And I also later on found out that if you take just a little bit of it, um, a different dose of it, because CBD affects different people, different ways, depending on quantities that you're using. So for me, when I want to go to sleep, I take a full dose. But in the morning, I'll get up, I'll drink a cup of coffee, I'll put a a drop or two um, under my tongue, and it actually helps me focus. So believe it or not, it has two different effects on you. But both of them are very positive. And like I said, when I sleep all night, I wake up, I'm ready to go. It's none of that, you know, cement head. Yeah. What we're talking about is no hangover, no addiction. 
And unfortunately, a lot of times when we're telling old wrestling stories, they end in addiction. That's not what this is. This is an alternative that we're really proud of. You just place a few drops of feels under your tongue and you'll feel the difference within minutes. Now, as Eric said, the thing to remember about CBD is finding your right dose is important and really everyone's dose is different. So what feels has done is set up a free CBD hotline. They're going to help answer any questions and help you find the right dose for you. The perfect dose. In fact, the feels customer service team is really dedicated to making sure that you get the best possible use out of your CBD. Now joining the feels monthly membership makes your self-care easy. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel anytime. So start feeling better with feels become a member today by going to feels.com slash 83 weeks, and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F E A L S.com slash 83 weeks to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off of your first order with free shipping. That's feels.com forward slash 83 weeks. This is a rumor and innuendo, but it is an interesting follow-up question. Low quality music productions. Shout out to that name says, what does Eric think about Greg Ganya saying he wished he'd never gotten him in the business. Now to be clear, Eric, I Conrad Thompson have never heard Greg Ganya say that, but I have heard Greg say a lot of other nonsense. So it sounds plausible that he could have said it. But I didn't certainly hear this interview, so I don't want to state it as fact. One more time. What does Eric think about Greg Gagne saying he wished he'd never gotten him into the wrestling business? And that doesn't sound like something Greg would say. Um, Certainly sounds like something that someone would think walking away from listening to Greg Gagne in an interview. Um. I've never heard him say anything like that, but if he said it, and I'm, I'm not sure he did, but if he did, um, I, I wouldn't know why he would feel that way. I didn't take anything away from Greg, me leaving Ada. If, by the way, Greg didn't get me into the wrestling business. So let's start at the very beginning. In the <laughs> Greg had nothing to do with getting me into the wrestling business. A gentleman by the Mike by the name of Mike Shields, who worked for Vern at the time, had very much to do with getting me at least a shot at the opportunity. And it was Vern who got me into the wrestling business. Greg was a bystander, he, and he had nothing to do with getting me into the so. The, so the idea, if if Greg did say that, it's coming from a place of dishonesty. Um, because he didn't have anything to do with getting me in the wrestling business. Now, Greg would have said, I wish my dad would have never allowed him to get into the wrestling business. Okay. That at least it would be truthful. It's his opinion, but at least it would be based in some kind of truth. Um, but even at that, you know, why would he say that? You know, it's not like Greg missed an opportunity because I took it from him because I was now in the wrestling business. So it kind of doesn't make any sense, but that shit doesn't bother me anymore. I, honestly, it when I hear things like that, we've, you know, we've done a um, pretty good job on Greg on the, uh, on the Eric fires back episodes over at adfreeshows.com. Um, and I do get, you know, animated and, and, and go off, you know, when I hear those kinds of things, but two minutes after we close the screen and the show's over with, I don't think about it. It right. doesn't bother me. Um, 
Yeah, we're, we're trying to have fun. We're trying to entertain you, but let's talk a little business. I think this is a, an interesting question. One you and I've never discussed. Quincy Charles wants to know if Goldberg didn't win the big gold belt on nitro, but instead he wanted a Halloween havoc. Do you believe it could have beaten the buy rate and gate from Starcade 97? So let me context is King. He won the belt. I believe July 6th, 1998 in Atlanta. If you continue that build to August, September, now we're in October. Of course, famously Halloween havoc 98 is the debacle that was Goldberg and diamond Dallas page. But if instead that is where Goldberg beat Hulk Hogan, I think, I think we've got a chance to at least be competitive and maybe perhaps beat the sting by rate from star K 97. What say you, Eric? I think so. <clears throat> I think it would have been possible, you know, given the right build the right story behind it. And it wouldn't have taken much of a story uh, because the build was already there. Bill Goldberg had so much momentum and was so over at that point that it wouldn't have taken, you know, a Shakespeare scholar to write a story, you know, to get us to that point. And I, I think that's a, a, yeah, I, th- I think it very easily could have done that. Um, exceeded Starcade. It's fun to talk about the old what ifs. Joey yeah, drive you crazy though, you know. It's like okay. I mean, it's like last night when we were doing the for the heat radio show, we started doing some fantasy booking, which is something we don't normally do. Right. We just don't, you know, either on this podcast or on the radio show. But because of all of the, you know, moving pieces <clears throat> that are in the world right now with, you know, Daniel Bryan and CM Punk and all the rumor and innuendo, and you know, it's it's you know, we're in the situation of, you know, it's pretty exciting, by the way, I'm very excited, you know, regardless of what happens, it's going to be really positive unless neither, you know, Daniel Bryan or CM Punk actually end up on television, but I don't think that's going to happen. But regardless of where they both or individually land, whether it's both in AEW or one in AEW, one back to WWE, it doesn't really matter. Uh, what matters a lot to AEW, obviously, and will matter a lot to WWE, but for fans, it's, it, it's, it's going to generate a ton of excitement and interest. And it's fun to think about the possibilities. And, you know, we had listeners last night coming up with some stuff that I thought was really, really exciting Yeah, to think about. I don't know how possible it is, but, you know, man, there's some great options out there. Right? And you came up with a couple yourself that have made me, oh, damn. I maybe would start watching wrestling on a regular basis again if that happens. Well, Let's talk about some other fantasy booking here. Joey Mills wants to know both the Vinces, McMahon and Russo, booked themselves to become world champion. Did you ever consider putting the world title on yourself during your career? World champion Easy E has a nice ring to it. No, that would have been horrible, horrible. You know, the closest I got to it was beating Terry Funk for the hardcore title that I held for about 36 hours. So, uh, no, I would have never done that. I mean, you know, it's a little different with McMahon. Um, it's acceptable in my mind creatively. I mean, um, you can believe it and buy into it because he is Vince and he has the look and he has the character and he certainly has the ability, you know, to pull it off on a mic. And, and he had the ability in the ring. He 
certainly wasn't Eddie Guerrero, <laughs> but he didn't need to be with his character. Um, and what he did do, he did really well. So I, I don't think Vince McMahon putting the, the, the title on himself was a creative sin. I really don't. Russo, on the other hand, that was that was like really bad comedy. That's how painful it was. Have you ever been to a? I know you have because I know you love comedy and go into, you know, comedy shows. I'm going to one this weekend. It's like sitting, you know, sitting through, you know, two hours of bad stand-up comedy. It's painful. Trade pros. Whether you specialize in service or new construction, Ferguson knows firsthand how much work goes into a long day on the job which is why we're committed to offering the products and solutions to get every job done right. With over a 1,000 locations, an unmatched selection of specialty products, tools, and supplies, our pro pickup and same or next day delivery, you can trust that doing business with Ferguson will be the easiest part of your hard day's work. Visit ferguson.com to find a counter location near you. You know, I um, I got to think that some of our listeners probably haven't put together the fact that what an in-ring career you've had. And I'm, I'm saying that not so tongue in cheek, you beat Terry Funk for the hardcore championship. You beat Ric Flair at Starcade. Hell, you even had a match with stone cold and John Cena. Not a lot of guys can check all of those boxes. And yet here you are having been in the ring with all of those guys. I know it's silly, but that's some crazy shit. When you think about it, is it not? It is. And I, I do, it, it does cross my mind every once in a while. If I'm reading a headline about somebody and you know, it, what a privilege, right? I mean, I didn't really wrestle those guys. Right. It wasn't a really a wrestling match, but to be able to get into the ring, you know, and I think stone cold in particular, stone cold and Ric Flair in particular, because there was a build for it. It wasn't, you know, Terry Funk was like spontaneous combustion. That idea was a kind of a spontaneous idea and it happened. And it was, it was a TV moment is all it really was. Right. Right. It, it, it was something more than an, an intense promo is really all that was. Um, it was nothing more, nothing less. Austin, on the other hand, because of the backstory, <clears throat> because of the strength of his character and not to sound like a jack off, but because of the strength of mine at the time. And the build leading up to it at least made me get a sense of what it must feel like to, as a performer, as a wrestler, to be in a really hot program. And what a gift. And that's exactly the way I looked at I do look at it now. It's just a gift. It's a blessing to be able to have experienced that because it's a different kind of rush than it is even, you know, at the peak of the NWO thing and me being the leader of it at all, or the voice of it all, I guess, more than anything else. Um, that was insanely fun, but it's different than building up to a match when it's you and your opponent in the middle of the ring, in the middle of, in the case of in Montreal, what it was 15, 80,000 people that were really into that story. I wasn't the garnish on the plate any longer. I was the pork chop that was about to get devoured, but it was so much fun. And I'm so grateful for it. <clears throat> Same with Rick. Um, everything else that I've done has just been kind of eh, almost 
well, it was what it was. It served its purpose. Rob wants to know, do you think if WCW had an owner as dedicated to the product as Tony Khan, WCW could have survived and thrived after 2001, of course, it's fun to armchair quarterback some stuff. Tony Khan at the time would have been, I don't know, 18 or 19 years old. Uh, so I don't know that that was necessarily an, an idea. So again, we're, we're fantasy booking, but it is an interesting question. I mean, we've heard for years that Ted was a big wrestling fan, but he wasn't exactly hands-on, but if someone had gotten control of WCW and take yourself out of the equation, cause we know that you were passionate about the product, but if someone else had emerged, not Vince McMahon, could it have worked no. post 2000? Okay. No. And, and I'll tell you why. Number one, no one, Vince McMahon, Eric Bischoff, Tony Khan, Joe blow. It doesn't matter. No one could have changed the direction and the decisions of those at AOL time Warner. I don't care how passionate you were. I was pretty passionate. You know, I don't know that Tony Khan is, is and maybe he is, cause I don't work with him every day. I don't know, but I, I find it hard to think that there would be anybody more passionate about WCW than I was from about 94 through the first part of 98. Now, could there have been people who were smarter than me or made better choices than me or had more experience than me? Of course, absolutely. And I do think about that. You know, had I been a little bit more experienced in the way of the corporate world, had I, there's a lot of things that could have been different. But ultimately, when a network decides, no, well, look at Tony Khan. Look at what they've done building up Wednesday nights. Somebody at corporate went, no, we're, we're doing something different. We're going we're gonna to change up the schedule because we believe this decision is a better decision than, the, than you know, running AEW on Wednesday nights. Tony Khan can be as passionate as he wants. He's not changing that. And that's the difference is if Tony Khan had been an employee of Turner Broadcasting, mm. he would have been in the same position, meaning shit rolls downhill. Mm -hmm. I don't care how passionate you are. Once a decision is made at the highest levels of a media company like AOL Time Warner was or T Time Warner is now or Turner Broadcasting was, once those decisions are made, all the passion in the world isn't going to change it. So I, I don't think it was a problem or an issue with, with passion. And especially when the turn broadcasting owned WCW, AEW, you know, Tony Khan owns AEW, right? Not Turner broadcasting. If Turner broadcasting owned AEW, we'd be seeing, or maybe not even seeing a lot of different challenges that we're seeing right now. So it would have not worked shorts. God, do you believe this? I spent three minutes answering a question. I could have answered. <laughs> nope. Surprise. Nope. Uh, Shane wants to know, Hey, Eric, what do you believe the ceiling for AEW is? Could you see them achieving the same level as 96 to 98 WCW? My instinct is to say, absolutely not. 
not because Tony and AEW don't have the resources, the talent or anything. The world's changed. It's the world is different. Yeah. It's just, it's like saying, Hey, you know, do you think if, uh, you know, this really smart guy, I know that studies, you know, rocket science, you know, at Harvard, you think he could kind of create the same excitement as, you know, happened back in 19, whenever it was 68, 69, when man, man first laid out on the moon. No, the world has changed. Everything is different. So I, No, here's an analogy for you, Eric in the sixties. And I'm sure you know this. Will Chamberlain scored a hundred points by himself in a basketball game. That's not happening in 2021 because the game has changed, right? Yes. The world has changed. changed. It's just not possible anymore. And I don't know that we necessarily, that doesn't mean by the way that the guys who are running up and down the court today in 2021 aren't as good of a player as Will Chamberlain is, or that if Will Chamberlain could somehow time travel and was on the court today. He could score a hundred today. That doesn't work. And you know, you've got to appreciate things in the context of which they exist. And that's why we say here on the show, context is King. Michael McClanahan wants to know now that it is tentatively concluded, although I'm not sure about that long-term, what does Eric believe the Thunderdome's legacy will be in wrestling? I think people will forget about it and pretend it never happened or wish it never happened. I I, I mean, there's nothing really what happened during that whole era era, the 12 or 16 months of Thunderdome and and no live crowds and all that. What happened that really stands out in anybody's mind that was positive. I can't think of anything really. I mean, that, that, that we're going to be talking about five years from now, Rome, years Rome, from now. Roman Reigns turning heel. I mean, they tried so desperately to get Roman Reigns over with this audience for years and years and years. Wait a minute. Are you drinking water out of a Mason jar? Yeah. You're a country motherfucker. I don't want to hear you knock on me one more time about being a hillbilly or a redneck. You're drinking water out of a Mason jar. I am a redneck. Well, I, I'm now, glad I don't we've... live in the South, but, but you I could never use the term hillbilly or country in a derisive way. I, I mean, look where I'm at. <laughs> That's fair. Do, but I, do I look like a city slicker to you? That, that, uh, that Mason jar threw me off. I'm like, wow, look at you out there doing some canning. I didn't know that you and Mrs. B had a garden and blah, blah, blah. It's like, dude, this is a redneck right here. I don't want to hear it. You know what? We do have a garden. I know you do. I'm just saying got like, a garden, you know, I, I, the meat that we eat is generally not all the time. Something you killed something that I, I hunted. And by the way, butchered myself with yeah. my own two hands. I don't take it to a meat processing plan. I do that shit myself with my buddy. Um, so yeah, I'm about. You know, and again, I don't use those terms derisively, I guess. No, no, we're just kidding around. But no, I, yeah, I love, here's what I, cause I drink a lot. You know, I drink a lot of water and I love these mason jars because I can get a quart of water at a time. And I have to get up and down and run back and yeah. forth trying to get a glass of water, or a bottle of water. And I don't like, I hate drinking things out of plastic. Right. I don't know why. It's just, a, it's a head trip for me. I just don't like it. So yeah, I love my mason jars. I got mason jars all over the place. It is better, you know, uh, to drink, uh, like, um, 
you know, I know it's not necessarily your favorite, but a cold diet Coke on ice and a glass just tastes better. I don't know why. I agree with you. Uh, Gregory iron says with the exception of the Hulkamania UK tour in 1994, why was there never WCW merchandise that bared the phrase Hulkamania on it? Was this a licensing issue with the WWF? No, no, it, it's just, you know, like WCW was so, um, new to the world of licensing and merchandising. They never really had it on a large scale. Everybody, you know, you may have t-shirts You go get, get t-shirts, get 500 t-shirts, put it up at a t-shirt shop in your local community and have them for sale at your independent wrestling event. That's no big deal. But when you're talking about mass merchandising and licensing, WCW was so far behind the eight ball in learning on the job, so to speak, that there just wasn't enough thought given to it. And there wasn't the infrastructure for it. And I'm going to, I'm going to be honest. It wasn't the demand. For it. Well, there's it, a lot of it out there, but it, you know, licensing and merchandising was a, an asterisk on the annual, <clears throat> um, budget at the end of the year. It, it just, it was not a big line item for us. So, but you sold Hulkster shirts. And I think that's really the genesis of the question is, for years and years and years and years, fans were wearing Hulkamania t-shirts. And I think most people would assume, oh, well, WWE must own that. Nope. We can't really sell that. So we'll try Hulkster. I guess the other way of thinking could be, well, uh, everybody who wanted a Hulkamania shirt by now probably has one, but if we put Hulkster on it, maybe we can get them to buy a new one. I think, I, I think Conrad, the real answer was probably something like, all right, we've got a limited amount of budget to go out and produce these shirts. These shirts, we're not really sure how they're going to sell, so let's pick one that we think is going to sell the best and put all of our time and resources into that. And if that does well, then we'll expand the Hulk line, as opposed to, all right, let's let's create twenty thousand Hulk Hulkster shirts, twenty thousand Hulkamania shirts. Um, or even if you, if, 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 if the opportunity was, okay, we're going to produce 10,000 shirts, let's do three of this, three of this, 3000 of this, 3000 of this, right. 3000 of that. What are you going to do if one of them sells way better than the other two? Right. You're eating a lot of merchandise. So it was more of a walk before we run kind of approach as opposed to any kind of a trademark or, or copyright issue. I do want to ask, uh, Cause you and I, I think have discussed it on the show, but it was just sort of offhanded and I joked once and you didn't necessarily disagree that I'm sure there were a lot of creative reasons why the NWO split into two factions. And perhaps there were political reasons with Hogan and Nash, both jockeying for position and trying to be the apple of your eye and be the top guy, et cetera, et cetera. But it also became the hottest wrestling t-shirt of all time, or at least in the conversation. And how do you get those folks to buy another shirt? Well, let's do a different color. It's not unlike what the NFL does these days when they do a different colorway Jersey. And all of a sudden there's a mad rush on jerseys again, because if you've been a long time, Tom Brady fan a few years ago, when he was a Patriot, you probably already had it maybe in blue and white, but. Hey, they're trying a new color. Maybe we can re-merchandise a new color. Ta-da. That was part of the strategy for the Wolfpack. Am I right? Of course. 
you know, and, and with NWO, it was so hot for a long enough period of time that you had the ability to kind of plan yeah. and, you know, react and plan to exploit growth and opportunities and, and try new things. Um, but absolutely, you know, at some point, although, you know, I was watching AEW while we were doing the radio show last night and I'm sitting there watching it and I'm seeing all those NWO shirts in the audience in 2021. It's, it's just so much fun. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off. Like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professionals background or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all of those terms, your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Learn about these investment products and more at investor.gov. Your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, investor.gov. Since you brought up AW, let's go to Rajiv's question. He says, is there such a thing as having too much talent in your company? AEW had some up and coming stars at their launch and WWE has some great talent that you almost never see anymore. And I wonder if it's because they have too many on their roster to utilize them all. And Eric from the AEW side of things, and obviously WWE is, a, is another animal, but from the AEW side of things, when I see them signing all this big talent and I see them essentially, I mean, I've even seen the word online stockpiling talent where there's big stars that you don't see on TNT right now, but they are on YouTube and I see fans just railing. Oh, this is a waste of them. And all I could think was, have they not learned like what you've talked about when it came to thunder? Because all of a sudden, when you add the second show, man, you've got to have a lot of talent ready to go. And you went on a signing spree back then that people have criticized, but we're about to have a second AEW show. They need more talent for that second show, right? They do. <clears throat> and again, keep in mind, we didn't have YouTube opportunities back then. And, and right. I don't know, you know, I don't follow the business closely enough anymore to have a, an opinion. It's more of a question is, you know, how valuable is that YouTube AEW dark show? What kind of revenue does that show generate? Well, let's talk through that because I think it's, it's a, it's a double-edged sword for one. It is a, a fast and easy way to let fans sort of have a, a bite, an appetizer, if you will, of what this product looks like, who the characters are. They're also presenting themselves with wins and loss records. So it gives them an opportunity to, you know, have those numbers look the way they want them to storyline wise, but more importantly, especially during these last, I don't know, 15 months or whatever it is now during the pandemic. Well, in fact, AEW has never run house shows. Well, I guess they did the one you get my point. Once upon a time in the territory business, these guys were in different towns, honing their craft, and then they could look really sharp when it came time for TV and pay-per-view. That's not the case anymore. So a lot of these talent need reps, especially when you're talking about 21, 22, 23, 24 year old talent who are still very, very new to the wrestling business. The only way they get better is by doing you learn from doing and repetition and practice makes perfect and all those cliches. So I'm all for the YouTube thing. The idea being, Hey, if we're going to do these matches, might as well tape them 
this is not a shot, but WWE recently decided they needed everybody to start working this ring rust off. And they did it in private with no cameras rolling. And now Bailey's out for nine months, not saying that's ideal, but I am saying if it would have happened on TV, at least maybe we could have turned it into an angle instead of just, well, Bailey's gone and she's in surgery and maybe we'll see her in nine months. Again, I, I'd have to do a much deeper dive to have anything that was close to an opinion that mattered. Um, I think here's the risks other than the obvious risk of having a bloated talent budget and not being able to generate the revenue you need to, to, to justify it. Right. That's the obvious risk. The other less obvious risk, and this is something that can become a malignant problem is just, I mean, you look at the last couple months, let me preface this. This is not a criticism. Okay. This is just an observation from someone who's made some pretty significant mistakes in this specific area and kind of learned from them. Um, in the last couple of months, you've got Mark Henry, you've got Christian Cage, you've got Andrade. You help me out here, Conrad. You, you Paul White, Big Show. Oh, you've got all this incredibly valuable talent in, in their each in their own way. None of them sting. You know, are they as valuable with the influx of all that top talent? Is Sting as valuable of a commodity as he could have been if there would have been more focus on Sting? We talked a little bit about this last night, you know, in the, you know, this is fantasy booking, but in case, you know, Brian Daniels and, and CM Punk both go to AEW as we're reading about the possibility or the rumors at least. Um, that's an amazingly cool thing. It's a great thing, but to have them both come in at the time, at the same time, I think they each do, they dilute each other. Yeah. And you're spreading, you're, you're, you're spreading the, the heat, so to speak. Um, I think the, the, here's the risk. I'm trying to find a way to say this. I've only had one cup of coffee, so I'm kind of a disadvantage here. What's going to happen to a lot of that, Younger, I, the term homegrown, that younger talent that AEW started out with, that people were so excited about, right? I mean, what was the kind of, what was the excitement when AEW became a thing? We're going to be an alternative to WWE. First and foremost, I still hear that, by the way. Um, we're going to be alternative to WWE. That's a great goal. Be different then. I like it. Um, but then when you start bringing in so many, well, now in fairness, top talents, what happens to your core? What happened? But guys, but guys like Mark Henry and big show are not wrestling, right? They're they're, no, they're I mean, you could take them out of the equation, yeah. but you know, even with, you know, Andrade in there now and Chris K, uh, excuse me, Christian in there now, you know, you're and a punk comes in and Brian Daniels comes in somebody, there's only so much television time, folks. <laughs> there's only so many minutes in an hour. I could be wrong, but I don't think both punk and Daniel Bryan wind up there. And if they do, I'm with you. I hope they don't debut three weeks apart because 
one cannibalizes the other. Let's ride that wave. And then I, I just don't think they both wind up there. Just my two cents. I don't think it's well, a money. Even if they don't, there's still a lot of, ta- there's still a lot of ex WWE talent that are very valuable that are going to be taking up TV time from other younger, less experienced talent. And that's where the, that's where the rift starts. This is what I'm trying to get to, but I'm dancing around it. When you bring in all that top talent, who's had so much television time on the biggest platform in the world, they've obviously got a big fan base. All of a sudden that younger aspirational group of talent, you know, that's coming up that people were getting so excited about they're not going to get the focus because there's only so much television time and internally, and this is, and this is not going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month, but over time, a lot of that talent that people were so excited about and differentiated, this is the important part, differentiated AEW from WWE and delivered on the promise of being an alternative alternative all of a sudden doesn't feel like an alternative anymore. Let me freestyle this though, because the use of a guy like sting, I think is a great example. Sting's going to come in and have action figures that are going to fly off the shelves. He set merchandise records in his first 24 hours. So he's selling t-shirts and swag and all that. So you're justifying your investment and yes, he's had a handful of matches, but what he's really done is he's lent his credibility to Darby Allen. More people know who Darby Allen is now and are more excited about Darby Allen now than they would have been without the association with sting. And once upon a time, you use talent with wins and losses to help get them over. Meaning the only way sting could help quote unquote, make guys is for him to have a match and lose to them. And you know, he, he loses to their finish or whatever, but I do think that sting is a great example of how they've used a legend to help make one of those bright, young, new, quote unquote, homegrown talents. I agree with you a hundred percent. I think that, that Tony Khan and AEW, the team uh, in its entirety have done a fantastic job with Sting. Sting isn't an example of what I would be concerned about. Sting is only going to add value and create awareness, as you pointed out, for guys like Darby Allen and others and bring that credibility. And more importantly, bring that part of the audience. I know everybody's still, you know, and and justifiably talks about the 18 to 49 year old demo. And that's an important demo. But I think what sometimes people who write about wrestling often don't realize or refuse to, or just don't take the time to think about is that a character like sting will bring in an 18 to 49 year old demo. Yeah. Yeah. He's 60 years old. You know, Jericho's what push he's over 50. Yeah. People who don't really understand the television business, um, who are, you know, massive wrestling fans or have written about wrestling for decades or whatever, um, they equate age to demo. I mean, the, the, the age of a talent to the demo that he or she will attract. And that's, that's not the wrong, case. Yeah. Wrong thinking. So I agree with you going back to say the way that AEW is using legends, I think is a much better way than WWE uses legends. Correct. WWE uses legends to embarrass to and humiliate them embarrass and, and put in bad, with the exception of a couple, like obviously undertaker and maybe a handful of others or small handful of others, but everybody else is kind of like, you're there to be humiliated, humiliated, um, degraded in a way as a character. They literally, uh, one of the reasons I think big show left WWE. 
he didn't, he probably didn't want to get Arn Anderson. I mean, people don't talk about it anymore, but they had stone cold, Steve Austin urinate on Arn Anderson. What the fuck? I mean, so the difference between AEW and the way they use legends and WWE is night and day. And I'm very grateful to, to AEW for the way they use legends. And not only because some of them I know, and I've had the opportunity to be on the show and they've always treated me well on TV, but <clears throat> people don't realize that that guys like sting and, and big show, who's I guess a legend at this point, even though I still think of him as being a young guy, um, they bring that 18 to 49 year old demo in. I was going through my social media the other day, and here's a little kid that's got an NWO birthday cake, and he was five years old. You know, and Granted, his parents probably had something to do with that. Sure. But when you go to these conventions and you, you do autograph signings, this never ceases to amaze me. I have kids that are 14, 15, 16 years old um, dying to meet me. Yeah. I'm not putting myself over. These are just, you know, really hardcore wrestling fans, but they weren't even. <laughs> They weren't even clearly they weren't around back when I was on television, but they're fans of the business. They yeah. get the WW or Peacock network, you know, they, they, they know, and those legends will bring in that younger audience. But what I'm, what I'm trying to say and doing a horseshit job doing <laughs> there's, there are, is, is they make room for the Andrades of the word world and the Christians of the world and whoever else comes in. Uh, of the world from WWE by default, there are people who are not going to get that prime time. Tell no, you'll be on YouTube and that has value, but it's not the same thing. You're not building a career on YouTube. You're building a career on television. I think you're honing your craft. I think you're honing your craft on YouTube and I think you're learning, you're learning it. Yeah. Let's jump into uh, an interesting question. One that I don't think you and I have ever even thought about. Matt wants to know, I was recently watching old episodes of WCW worldwide. Matt, why are you doing that? Anyway, I completely forgot about the spinning ring introductions. Uh, what was the origin of a rotating ring? Whose idea was it? Finally, any ribs or malfunctions during a match with it. Eric, that is a cool thing. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget the first time I saw it. It sort of made me reminiscent of what car dealerships use when they've got, you know, the new latest and greatest model, whatever, and they're going to put it on one of those little turnstiles and there she goes. And that's pretty cool. But the idea that there's a wrestling ring also spinning, man, that's a big idea. It's different. And I liked it and we haven't seen it since. What can you tell us about how it came to be? It was a coincidence when, when WCW first, when I first went down to Disney uh, to explore the possibility of working there and, sh- and shooting TV there, which is another story in and of itself. Someday we'll do that with David Crockett. That'll be fun. Um, Cause David was very instrumental in that. Uh, but when we got there, Bob Allen was the guy who was running Disney M studios at the t- at the time, excuse me said, Hey, let's go over to the soundstage that, you know, we have in mind for you and take a look at it. There was something else. Previously, there was somebody else shooting something in there. I don't even know what it was. And they had finished, they had wrapped their production. So this was the uh, option that was available. This soundstage was the option that was available to us. So we walked over and looked at it and there's this big rotating platform in the center of the soundstage that the previous production had, had installed and was using. 
And I went, well, that's, what is that? You know, how do we get rid of that? And, you know, of course, getting rid of it costs money. Right. right? And we were on a really tight budget back then. We were watching nickels and dimes. It was, I didn't have Ted Turner's money as everybody likes to talk about. It was okay. How do we make this work? Because one of the reasons that we moved to Disney was to kind of take an advantage of economies of scale. So instead of traveling a bunch of people in trucks and and shooting four hours of television, you know, every two weeks, we could go down there, you know, really um, save a ton of money in terms of travel and expense by staying in one location and stockpiling a bunch of, you know, gang shooting is what we call it, um, a bunch of television. But it was still very expensive at least initially, we wouldn't, we wouldn't see the economy of scale affecting our budget, you know, for a year, six months or a year, and then it would start making sense. So as we're trying to, you know, scrimp together the nickels and dimes that it took to go down there and start shooting at Disney, we walk into that sound stage, I see the rotating platform and well, clearly that we got to get rid of that because, you know, that's not going to work. And I think the price tag on it was, seven or eight or $10,000 or something. I was like, oh, kind of didn't plan on that one. And then Bob said, yeah, but what if, two favorite words, what if, what if you put your ring on that platform? Mm. And, and we measured it and it would work. And I said, well, how, how fast does that thing turn around? Guys going to be flying out of the ring, you know, cause like a merry-go-round when you're a little kid. Um, but, you know, we, we watched it turn and then it was like, well, that's badass. Now you're, you're, you're visually, you've got something that you've not seen before. It's good for the audience because, you know, they're getting angles and looks at things that are a little different and it's, it's kind of cool. And we didn't have to spend the money to tear it out. <laughs> well, that's how it came about. It's tremendous. What a cool story. And now we know the, uh, the answer. All right, Eric, this episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. Say it with us, Blue Chew. These guys are making waves and bringing more confidence to the bedroom by offering chewable tablets that can help men get stronger and longer-lasting erections. I'm not going to say it's going to last 83 weeks, but uh, it's going to get five stars <laughs> around the house, right, Eric? Yeah, that could get cumbersome. In my case, it could be dangerous. <laughs> furniture over, lamps would be flying. Here's be running out of the house screaming, get away from me. Yeah. Soon be looking for a donut. Uh, Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as both Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. Of course, the Blue Chew's tablets are going to help men achieve harder and longer lasting erections to combat all forms of ED. To be clear, Blue Chew is an online prescription service. Let me explain what that means. No more visits to the doctor's office, no more awkward conversations, no more waiting in line at the pharmacy and it ships right to your door in a discreet package. Now the process is simple. You just sign up at bluechew.com. You consult with one of their licensed medical providers. And once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part, it's all done online. Blue Chew's licensed medical providers work with you to find the right ingredient and strength for your prescription. If you don't like swallowing pills, well, that's no problem here. Blue Chew's Sildenafil and Tadalafil are chewable. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA and they prepare and ship direct. So it's cheaper than a pharmacy. So if you could benefit from some extra confidence when it's time to perform, 
Visit Blue Chew for more details and important safety information. Here's a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew for free when you use our promo code 83weeks at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com. The promo code is 83weeks to receive your first month for free. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring the podcast and Eric's Erections. <laughs> uh, Jimmy Andrews wants to know, can you please detail a regular working day during your last run at WWE? We've all heard of the insane hours Vince expects of his employees. Oh, it's kind of a PTSD, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, nobody really, for the most part, the writers, the people that I worked with every day, you know, a lot of them were from New York city. You know, they took the train in every day. Um, a lot of them lived, you know, quite a ways outside of Stanford. So the mornings didn't really get going till about 10 o'clock. So I'd, I'd show up usually about 9.15, 9.30, kind of get gassed up, you know, hit the coffee machine and, and get my day going. And then it was, for me, I can only speak for myself, It the morning always started with meeting with the writing team and kind of picking up where we left off the night before or attacking a new assignment that we needed to get ready for. And in many of those cases, that new assignment would be, okay, you've got a meeting with Vince Tuesday night at, you know, eight o'clock at night or six o'clock at night. He wants to see what we've got in mind for X. So part of the team would work on what needed to be be done for television that particular week. Um, Part of the team would work on preparing for the meeting that we were going to have with Vince to explore other television or pay-per-view as, as it's coming up in the future. So we'd split the teams, everybody go off and work in the interim. Once that ball started rolling, because I really wasn't there on a creative, my role wasn't really creative in the sense that I, I wasn't trying to come up with ideas or solve problems. Well, I was solving problems probably more than creating ideas, but nonetheless, I wasn't day to day in the writer's room. I would be, I managed the writer's room. I wasn't a part of the writer's room, if that makes sense. So after we got the ball rolling, we're prepping for meetings. We're getting ready to do TV. Um, I would also be meeting with the head of licensing, or I'd be meeting with the head of promotion, or I'd be on a phone call with somebody from Los Angeles on the PR side of the equation, preparing for the Fox launch. Cause that was a big part of things too. At that time, we were preparing for the launch of Fox so the, the rest of my day would be back and forth between working with writers, interviewing people. You know, we, we were constantly interviewing new writers. We were constantly interviewing production assistants. And the process was that they would, you know, meet a bunch of other people. And ultimately, they would meet me and then probably end up meeting somebody above me. But um, so between, you know, working with the writing team, working with the other department heads and making sure that we were coordinated and there was a lot of that. I mean, that, that was, there was a lot of my time spent doing that. Uh, that would usually take you through the day unless there was some, you know, catastrophe that you had to deal with you know, unexpectedly. And then most of it was for me, it was preparing for or meeting with Vince. And you said, this is the part that drove me batshit crazy, you know, and this is, you know, I've talked about not being able to adapt. And this is probably one of the things I really didn't adapt well to is I don't like sitting around waiting. I just don't. 
drives me batshit crazy. It's a waste of my time. I get bored with myself. Um, the, the, the mental energy that starts getting created in my head when I'm sitting around doing nothing is not healthy. So um, I spent, and it wasn't just me. It was me and Paul and Bruce and half a dozen other people. You know, as we're preparing for this meeting all day that we have with Vince at six o'clock or eight o'clock, you, inevitably you'd get that call. Well, Vince is running late. Okay, cool. How late? Now he should be ready by eight. Great. Well, we've got work to do. We can keep ourselves busy. We can stay productive. And then you get ready about quarter to eight. It's Vince isn't ready yet. Okay. We're all still here. Let us know. Funny. I know it's midnight. I know I told you I'd be home, but we're ready to go into this meeting with Vince. There were oftentimes that the six o'clock scheduled meeting with Vince or eight o'clock scheduled meeting with Vince didn't start till midnight. Just the way it's the way it was. His, that's, that's the culture. And I probably, along with a lot of other people, spent more time waiting because you and, 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 and the person would say, well, why don't you just, you know, you have time, you know, find a way to make it productive. There's got to be a way to be productive. Well, it's hard to be productive and go off in a direction if you haven't gotten the approval you need or the buy-in that you need along the way. So you get to a certain point where I, I, what else can we do until we know if this plan is approved or not? So you, there was a lot of sit around and wait. And I would say my days were really productive from about 10 o'clock in the morning till about five o'clock in the afternoon. And then the rest of the time was essentially waiting for Vince. Now, keep in mind, Monday nights we were doing TV. Friday nights, eventually, we were doing TV. So we're talking about Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday here. Right. And then, of course, on weekends, you're on call all weekend. You're working your ass off all weekend. So there wasn't a lot of downtime. And even when, you know, for me personally, this is the part that I had a hard time adjusting to is, you know, and going into it, I had no issue. It was like, hey, you know, don't be surprised if you're getting a call at three o'clock in the morning and Vince has a question. I, I don't mind that. Typically, I don't mind. But oftentimes for me, um, what wore me down wasn't the call at three o'clock in the morning. It was knowing that I have to be prepared for a call at three o'clock in the morning. Meaning you're never really away from anything. Your phone's with you. I took my phone to bed with me for crying out loud. You know, and that's the part that really got to me. That was the grind for me that kind of took me because I didn't have, I'm not blaming Vince McMahon or WWE. That's their, pro, their culture. That's their process. My job was to adapt to it and succeed in it. And I failed at that. But to me, that was the biggest challenge because once once I started resenting that, and that's the truth of it, I resented it. It was, to me, if I say, Conrad, I'm going to, that's why I'm very rarely late. If you say six o'clock, I'm here at six o'clock. Now, yeah. sometimes things happen, you know, that are out of everybody's control. Right, and that's right. acceptable to me. But out of, if you, if you make a hundred appointments with me, I'm going to be early for 90 of them. I may be late on two or three. And a couple I may have to reschedule. That's my goal is to just be on time and respect other people's time because time is money. Time is, time is something that 
is it's a valuable commodity to me. And whether it's time that I want to spend with my family or whether it's time I just want to spend on myself, um, pursuing a hobby or pursuing an interest or just getting away and kind of recharging my own batteries. My time to me is very valuable and to have it, even though it may not be valuable to anybody else, you know, I'm not saying I'm, I'm, I'm worth a lot of money, but my time to me is a valuable, valuable commodity and to sit around and burn it and waste it was fatiguing in its own way, but also in the way I look at things, very, very disrespectful. And that's where things started falling apart for me. And when I say falling apart, I didn't get angry about it and bitch about it or anything like that. It just demotivated me. It, it just took me out of the game in, in a way. I didn't want it to. I just couldn't help that. Tell me again, uh, how amazed you are that Bruce Pritchard can still find time to do a podcast most every week. You know, I love Bruce as a friend. I, I really, really love him, but I'm a, I, I won't call him Yeah, because I know what he's going through Yeah, and he won't sell it. No, I'll call him. I'll say, Hey Bruce, how are you? Great. Oh man. You know, he'll never sell it. Yeah. He's like McMahon that way. Yeah. He's a no selling motherfucker. I know what he's going through. Yeah. Now, unless things have changed. They haven't. They have. But I am amazed at what Bruce is able to do. And the fact that he's doing a podcast, I never thought he'd. I mean, I never thought it would last once he went to WWE. I really did. And. And having now, because he started with WWE before I did while you were still doing a podcast with him. So I didn't think it was going to last, but I had no idea why I thought that. But once I got there and saw what Bruce was going through, let's, you know, Bruce also has a lot going on in his personal life. He's got young kids, his wife, they made a big move across country. There were a lot of other things that were putting you know pressure on Bruce at a personal level, um, just life. Um, in addition to, you know, the pressure that Vincent and WWE put on him. So I'm shocked to this day that he still is able to drop podcasts. All right, Eric, something you and I agree on is we're both looking for ways to save money. We want to maximize our money. And, uh, we like to expose people who aren't in line with that sort of thinking. And you and I recently discovered here in the last year or so that these big box retailers who sell auto body parts. Maybe you need some oil. Maybe you need a headlamp. Maybe you need some new carpet. You just run down to the corner store. Well, if you go in there wearing a mechanics uniform with your name on your shirt, you get a different price than guys like me or you do, Eric. That's not fair. That's bullshit. It is. Thanks to Rock Auto, we don't have that experience anymore. Rock Auto is something Eric and I believe in because it's a family-owned business, and they've been serving auto parts customers online for like 20 years. As a matter of fact, just go to rockauto.com right now. And you'll see all the auto and body parts available from hundreds of manufacturers for your car. When I say they have everything, I mean it. Even stuff like engine control modules or brake parts or tail lamps or motor oil or whatever. And by the way, this works if you're driving a late model car or maybe you've got a classic. And Eric, you've been known to uh, get some mileage out of those old vehicles before. So every now and again, they need something. Why trek into town and 
hope that you don't get taken advantage of because a lot of these stores, they're doing price gouging like airlines do. It's whatever the market will bear. What happened to reliably low prices every time? That's what you'll see at rockauto.com. By the way, the rockauto.com catalog that's online is remarkably easy to navigate. So easy that even my dad can do it. And he classifies and self-identifies as a high-tech redneck. You can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle, choose the brands, choose the specs, and choose the prices you prefer. But you'll never spend twice as much for the same parts, not at rockauto.com. You'll see an amazing selection, reliably low prices, and all the parts your car will ever need at rockauto.com. Now, when you go to rockauto.com and see what's available for your car or truck, we want you to write 83 weeks in their How Did You Hear About Us box. That really is the best way to support our show. We want to let them know that we sent you. So go right now, rockauto.com. When you find what you're looking for, just write 83 weeks in their How Did You Hear About Us box. And Eric, I know you picked up a few things over the years from rockauto.com. It's fast, it's easy, and it's shipped right to your house. Yeah, let me let me j- jump in there. I just, you know, my favorite truck, I call it the ranch truck, and I call it the ranch truck because it explains to people why it's dirty and filthy all the time. But it's really it's really my dog's truck. It's the truck I use to take my dog to the lake or do whatever we're doing because um, my wife gets a little hot when I put her in the ice vehicles. <clears throat> but I love my, it's a 95 GMC, 2500 SLC. Looks like an old ranch truck. It's got 168,000 miles on it. And finally got to the point where I had to put new brakes in it. So I ordered the brakes from Rock Auto, came to my, got to my house real quick. My brother-in-law installed them for me because I wouldn't know how to do that. Saved a ton of money. It was fast. Everything that we ordered showed up at exact the same time. No, I don't know if you've ever been through this experience before, but you're going to order, you know, a package of things and you get a part of the package. Is there to get another part of it? Blah, blah, blah. Everything that we needed and replacing brakes in this particular vehicle, there were a lot of there were a lot of components getting that done. So we replaced the rotors and the brake pads and everything, I should say, he did. But uh, could not be happier with the service and the pricing. I highly recommend Let's check it out. It's rockauto.com. And when you see that, how did you hear about us box? Check it out. Right in 83 weeks. Let them know we sent you. Matt Goggins wants to know, I've always wondered how Ricky Rackman from MTV got involved with Nitro. Were you involved with bringing him on board? Yeah, I think I was. I, mean, I think I was. I mean, I know I was, but I, th- I think where it all started was uh, a radio appearance I did in Los Angeles when Ricky Rackman was a DJ. And he impressed me with his energy and his love for wrestling. He had a fairly workable knowledge of the product and current uh, knowledge of the product. So, uh, yeah, I think it just all started with me doing an appearance on his local Los Angeles radio show. Cody wants to know if things went the other way in 1996 and sting ended up being the third man. What do you think Hulk Hogan's role in the NWO angle would have been? He would have had to been, I think he and Ric Flair would have teamed up and been the, the team and the force that were taking on the NWO. I'm not saying that would have been a great idea necessarily. I think it would have been, I think it could have been. Yeah. I could hear the promo, you know, right now from Hogan in my head. I could hear a promo out of Hulk Hogan that would allow at least 80% of the total, not the hardcore audience. Hardcore audience would, you know, they would have gagged on it. But the audience that mattered, which is the 80% of your rating, 
would have bought into that, especially with Rick helping, helping that process creatively. Um, but I think it would have been Rick, Hulk, and others, obviously, um, kind of being the faces of WCW against the faces of the NWO. Here's the one from uh, Garrett. Would you put the outsiders on your top five best tag teams in WCW? And who would your top five be? I can't give you a top five. I just can't. Um, do I think that? No, I don't think they would have been top five in anything. Look, the outsiders were really an ext- a brand extension of the NWL. They well, weren't I- hot on the, onto the, you know, they, as a standalone, if you would have brought Scott Hall and Kevin Nash in as the outsiders and not have integrated them into the NWL, we wouldn't be talking about it on this podcast come and it would have gone and it would have not registered on the Richter scale. You had some big ones. I mean, Steiner brothers would be top five. Harlem heat would be top five road warriors would probably be top five. I think you could argue Hollywood blondes would be top five. Oh yeah. No, I'm not denying there weren't some great tag teams in there. It's just not top of mind for me, especially at this hour of the morning without a lot of coffee. Um, but the focus on, on, on outsiders is I, no, I don't think they would have been in in the same category of anybody that you just mentioned as a tag team, right? As singles, of course, because of the NWO, not because they were the outsiders. Jesse says, if Shawn Michaels had signed with WCW, would you have used him in an angle involving Brett? Probably not at that time. I think it was too raw yeah. for Brett. <clears throat> it was still too personal for Brett. I mean, maybe. You know, I'm sure the thought would have crossed my mind. It would have had to under the circumstances, something we would have had to dealt with. Um, but I, I don't, I don't think that that could have worked. At all. Uh, Jerry O'Sullivan says we've seen wrestlers, real life families get involved in on-screen storylines. Did you ever consider using Mrs. B on screen in any way, even if it was just a one-off? That's a fascinating question, Eric. You know, I've never talked about it and well, your wife's a former model, uh, and she's well-spoken. She has her own podcast, so she's not exactly shy. Why did that never happen? It just didn't make any sense. You know, I, I mean, if somebody would have come to me with an idea or if I would have had an idea that would have made it make sense invaluable. I would have done it. She would have done, but there was no, it wasn't her aspiration. There was no reason for it. And no, and and being in the wrestling business is not something that my wife was excited about doing. I mean, she loved that I was involved in it and was very supportive of me, but her interests would have not taken her in that direction at all. Did she become friendly with any of the ladies in wrestling? Mrs. B. Yeah. Oh, her and Liz were very, very close. Um, in fact, I think you saw Liz in the documentary, excuse me, you saw Lori in the documentary that WWE did on Randy Savage. And she talked about her relationship with Liz and how close they were. Liz has been out, had been out to my house here in Wyoming. Oh, wow. Lori would have, uh, she called them, you know, girls weekends mm. and Lori and Jenny Engel, um, a number of girls that worked in the office 
would all get together and, and come out here to Wyoming. They didn't do it every year, but they did it frequently. They'd go trout fishing. They'd hire a trout fishing guide and go up the North Fork up near Yellowstone and, and, and do some fly fishing and then hit one of the local taverns and put on the show and drive all the all the cowboys crazy. <laughs> but yeah, she was she was close to very close to Liz. Um, she was friendly with, with Hulk's wife, Linda, didn't, you know, go down and visit her on her own or anything like that, but she was pretty friendly with Hulk's wife, Linda. She was friendly, with obviously with Kimberly DDP's wife as a neighbor. Um, but yeah, there were, there were a number of people. All right. I got to take one more time out here to talk about something you and I both love last week. Uh, your dog, Nikki did a run in. Of course, uh, everybody knows about the Spice Girls here in my house, Ginger and Baby. One thing we, we have in common is we love our dogs. Now, our dogs could not be more different, but thankfully, Solid Gold has something for every dog or cat's dietary needs. And Solid Gold's nutritional platform is inspired by their founding belief that high-quality food is the best way to impact our pet's mind, body, and spirit. For over 45 years, these guys at Solid Gold have revolutionized the holistic pet food category and now they have something, as I said, for everyone. Check this out. Healthy whole grain and grain-free options. They've got wet food. They've got supplements like sea meal. And they even have 100% human-grade bone broth for dogs that your dogs are going to go crazy for. Basically, solid gold foods are just different because they cleanse the digestive system with whole superfoods. They balance with living probiotics. And they fuel with omega-3 and 6 fatty acids, which supports gut health, it nourishes our pets both inside and out. This is a home run for my dogs and your dog, right, Eric? I, I can't speak highly enough about this product. In fact, I'm trying to turn as many people onto it as I can. And my brother and sister, for example, friends of mine that have dogs. Because as you know, Conrad, Mrs. B is uh, she's very much into holistic nutrition. She's been studying it for about eight years uh, or more, actually, almost 10 now. So we eat, we're very cognizant of what we eat, what we put into our body, because we've learned, Mrs. B has learned, and she's taught me, you know, whatever you put into your body is going to affect your health and the way you feel, not only every day, but long-term. And we all know we're gonna outlive our dogs, right? And and it's, it's a fact of life. But what's also a fact of life is if you feed your dogs properly with a holistic diet, like solid gold, you can not only extend your dog's life, you can extend the active portion of your dog's life. So your dog can be remain a part of the family for as long as possible and enjoy doing it. And I've, I, I can't tell you how much I love this product and I can see, I won't go into great detail here, because it's not that interesting to listen to, but I can, I can see the difference in her digestive system. Now, the number of times a day she has a stool, the condition of that said stool, all of the above, all of that is a reflection of gut health and digestive health and efficiency. And I, it's noticeable. I've used other dogs and I've searched. I've, I've purchased some of the most expensive dog foods I can find looking for the right product for my dog because she's my dog, damn it. And I've never found one that's complete, that's healthy, uh, as solid gold is for my dog. And I can see the difference in her because I, you know, she spends 24 hours a day with me. She's got more energy. She's more alert. She's just a happier dog and she's happier because she's healthy. Your dogs are going to be happy and healthy as long as you're getting them 
solid gold. Check it out right now. Save 30% on select solid gold products. When you go to solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks, that's solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks to save 30% on select solid gold products. Remember solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks. Dan Barillo wants to know with more wrestlers and personalities doing shoot interviews and podcasts, does it ever make things awkward at conventions? If someone disagrees with something that's been said about them, you ever have any moments like that where you run into somebody in real life, where maybe you knew they said this, or you said that and you're like, oh, here we go. No, I, I, I don't. And, and mostly cause I don't give a fuck. What right. people say about me, I really, I mean, I really don't. Now, if it's, you know, somebody's out and out lying, I'll get, I'll engage, um, mostly to embarrass them for lying, um, or distorting facts, depending on how egregious it is. You know, some of the shit I just don't care about anymore. Everybody's got their own memories of what happened, and those memories are, are, are evolve <laughs> over time. And you know, I've said this before to you, Conrad. I listen to people who are really close friends of mine. I've listened to Hulk describe, you know, his perspective of something that went down in a period, in a, certain, in a very specific incident or a period of time. And I'm listening to them going, well, not really. <laughs> That's not really what happened, Hulk. But I know it's not coming from a place of, uh, it's not selfish. It's just time distorts shit. And the other thing that distorts it stories and, and recollections is you tell these stories in shoot interviews and promos over and over, you know, cause you, you're out, you're doing a comic con, you're on a panel, you end up doing a Q and a with you know, seven, eight, 900 people or whatever it is, you know, more often than not, the questions you're getting are questions you've had before or a close version thereof. And you end up telling, you know, these same stories over and over again, and you want to make them a little more interesting. You want to make them a little more entertaining. So what starts out is a little bit of color around the edges um, over time, because our memories fade and our recall of exact events fade. And then they're further distorted or they evolve further by the fact that we're trying to make them more. I've done it. Now, I'm guilty of it too. I'm not pointing fingers at people. I try not to. I'm, I'm aware of it, um, but it happens. So I don't take any of that stuff personally, unless it's very, very egregious intentionally. Someone's trying to be you know, negative or harmful in some way. Yeah. It'll, that'll get my attention. And I'll, I'll, I call people out. I have no problem with it. I'm not going to get in a fight with anybody over this shit. Um, but I'm also not going to pretend I don't hear something egregious when I, when I, when I do. Um, sometimes, you know, there's been times when I've, you know, I can't pick one off the top of my head, but if it's a public setting and I'm not shy about calling people out in public, you know, if it's on a panel or in a discussion, I'm not going to call somebody out in a bar or something like that. But if you're in a panel discussion and somebody's, I hear somebody's version of a story that I know is intentionally bullshit. Um, no problem calling it out, but it's it, not, it doesn't happen very often. It's happened in panels, but even then it's in a fun way, right? Um, You're trying to entertain and have a good time. Yeah, it's and, not in a 
Fuck means- you, motherfucker. I'll meet you outside. It's not that. Yeah. It's just like, well, that's how you remember. Well, let me tell you how I remember it, you know, but that's entertaining. So I don't mind when it happens. You know, Kevin Nash has a, Um, but that's Kevin, you know, I've heard a lot of things out of Kevin and I'm going, (laughs) no, but like I said, I've heard Hulk Hogan and I've heard things that Hulk Hogan has said and I'm T that's, that wasn't it, but Hey, whatever, (laughs) it's whatever. Go about your business. But wrestling breeds that, that sort of Uber macho machismo, you know, braggadocious finger wagon nonsense. And so. Even I, through the course of, you know, all that we've done in the wrestling space, whether it's these shows or, or promoting conventions or whatever, I've had a handful of guys, I want to come to your house and kick your ass. And I just text them my address and give them the gate code. It's not eighth grade. What are they going to do? We're going to fight. What is it? No, that's not real life. Like, come on, man. That's not real. Like we're trying to do business together and make money. And in the end, this will all be silly and we'll have a beer, but. We're not going to throw hands at the Hilton. That's nonsense. What? You know, I'll tell you what, here's a, here's a perfect example of something that happened recently. Now, you know, because he's been, he's been on the receiving end of my, um, uh, Eric fires back commentary. Oh, I know where you're months. going. You're going to Jacksonville. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard JJ Dillon say pretty disparaging things about me in the past. Of course. Um, at times it bothered me, not because he was saying something negative about me, but because a number one, I knew the truth. And number two, you know, this was a guy I tried to help out when he needed it the most. And that always, that hurts me personally. It doesn't bother me professionally. I don't give a fuck, but it's kind of like, man, no, no, no good deed goes unpunished. And for a long time, Whenever I thought of JJ or I would see JJ at a convention, we would never talk to each other. He would never approach me. I didn't approach him. We just kind of left each other alone. It is what it is kind of thing. And then I saw JJ in Jacksonville, you know, six months ago or whatever it was. And just like you just said, it's like, well, this is silly. Yeah. No. And we ended up having a beer and I was so excited to reconnect with JJ and it's just an example of all, all of that rhetoric, all, all of that the stuff that we all say about ourselves and each other, you know, from time to time, um, none of it really matters. Yeah. Unless it's entertaining. Then, then I'm good with it. If somebody wants to bury me in an entertaining way and it's good for them and their family and it's good for their fans and good for the business, I don't take it personally. I really don't. I make it probably sounds like I do sometimes. But when I'm done talking about it or reacting to it on camera, I don't give a fuck. I really don't. And I can so much not give a fuck that I'll sit down and have a beer with somebody. Right. I don't care. You know, I don't take it all that seriously anymore. Unless, you know, there are some some people who have in the past gone way too far. And and it was obvious that their intent was not to be entertaining, not to get themselves over, but to be malicious. And that brings out another side of my personality, but for the most part, I don't really give a shit. A lot of it is just, uh, you know, and so much of this space is just weird. Right. So like people don't approach, you know, Gary Busey on the street as if he was a character they saw in a movie, but they approach 
professional wrestlers as if they are that character. And it's, that's not real to me, sort of the unspoken, I don't know, dude code man law is all right. Say whatever you want on your shoot interview or your podcast or whatever, but we're not going to talk about wives or kids like families are off limits, but outside of that, have fun. It's all nonsense. Yeah. To, to a large degree. And I think the other thing that the other reason I think it happens is the unique nature of the talent involved. Keep in mind, especially, you know, the, the older guys, you know, like me, I guess. Um, you were kind of brought up in the business to live that character. There you go. And to be that character in public, unlike Gary Busey. Right. Or any other actor. Yeah. So you carry that character with you wherever you go and you're trained. It's your, it, you, you don't even have to think about it. In fact, you don't even realize you're doing it sometimes is you're staying in that character because that's the way you learned to keep yourself over or to get yourself over. So when people are doing shoot interviews or they're out in public, you know, at a comic con or a wrestling convention or whatever, you know, for the most part, they're in character whether they know they're being in character or not. So I think a lot of the storytelling and the way certain people position themselves within that story is kind of part of their second nature and overshadows truth and fact. But I've, I've come to accept that a long time. Here's one from Chris. We've never talked about this, but when Ric Flair would cut a highly emotional promo in the ring, what was he like immediately afterwards backstage? Would he need his space to cool off? Yeah, a little bit. You know, I think, you know, Rick, when, when Rick, you know, we've seen those interviews, um, where Rick would get he was so angry. He get tears in his eyes and he was so passionate. That wasn't Rick pretending to be passionate or pretending to be emotional. One of the reasons that Rick is Ric Flair and to this day is so well-respected as a talent and a performer is because he, he felt the emotion he was trying to convey. It was real emotion for him. So yeah, some of those, some of the more intense ones, I wouldn't, I wouldn't approach Rick till what well, I, I wouldn't approach Rick at all until after the show, depending on the, the, the promo. Um, but there was a couple where I would just, I'm just going to stay away from him until he's ready to come and talk to me. And then I know he's cool, but you know, I would definitely give him his space as I would any talent who really poured themselves into that promo. And you know, a lot of Rick's promos were very personal. They were based on his personal life, personal situations. Clearly the one that I was involved with him was real life, personal situation with regard to, you know, Rick suing me or WCW and WCW suing Rick and, my role and all that, that was very, very real. So the emotion that Rick conveyed shared is a better word to say it shared that emotion in some of those promos it was all very real. And yeah, I would, I'd stay away from Rick. Not that I was afraid of Rick at all, but I wanted to give him his own time to come back down because it's hard. You know, it's hard to, if something happens in your life that, you know, just cracks you emotionally and you break down and, you see some of the things that we saw Rick go through in the ring in the course of a promo, that's all very real. And it takes a little bit of time to kind of get yourself back together again. So yeah, I'd stay away from, him. I don't, you know, I don't know about, you know, people close to him like Arn and others probably, 
you know, went right to him and, and were there for him, but you know, not me. All right, Eric, last week you were bragging about your Wagyu steaks. I sort of poked holes in the idea of marinating all of these steaks. It's such a fine cut of meat, uh, but you went through this big convoluted process. And you also told me I'm going to make some regular Wagyu steaks, but the common denominator, the badass Rectech grill, it's a wood pellet grill fueled by all natural hardwood pellets. And you showed us how you could do everything from your phone. Yes, a lot of the other guys can turn your grill off or maybe adjust the temperature, but I didn't know that you could even turn your grill on from your phone, but you did it last week on the show. But what you haven't told me is what was the verdict? Did you prefer the marinated Wagyu or the regular Wagyu? First of all, last night when we were doing the radio show, I didn't bring this to your attention, but I knew I was coming home later in the evening and Mrs. B wanted to grill and uh, we decided to have dinner when I got home. So I actually, now the radio station was 28 miles from my house. As I'm sitting, doing a live radio show with you, I am turning on the grill and adjusting the temperature from 28 miles away. It was just, I still love that. I love certain aspects of technology. That's one of my favorites. But in terms of the steak, I, I'm, I'm going to go with the marinade. The only thing I wished is I wish I would have had, I wish I would have marinated it longer because the marinade we were using was a really, really good marinade. But I think it didn't have quite enough time to really um, do the job it needs to do on the meat. So the next time I do it, I'm going to marinate for probably about six or eight hours. Well, here's what you don't have to do. Spend six or eight hours figuring out who makes the best grill around. In fact, I'm almost embarrassed to explain this, but... I was pretty proud. I got a Christmas present this past year and it was a different kind of grill. I was all jazzed to show my, my grill and pal Eric here. And he says, oh, that's nice. But you <laughs> could just kind of tell mm, it's not as good as mine. Now that I've learned about Rectech, I understand the difference. You see, Rectech uses a ceramic igniter versus the fragile steel igniter gimmicks that all the competitors are using. In fact, these igniters on a Rectech grill. They're rated for over 270 years of everyday grilling. I don't even know how that's possible. But the really cool thing that Eric's sort of been bragging about is the gold standard PID Wi-Fi controllers. It's the same form of temperature controller you would see in commercial baking, brewing, or even pharmaceuticals. All that's fancy speak for. Eric can control his grill from anywhere in the world using the Rectech app. It can turn it up, down, off, even on remotely, which is just something you don't see anywhere else. Rectech is all about every lifestyle and every budget. They've got something for everybody, but what everybody will enjoy is a focus on flavor, convenience, and versatility. But maybe best of all, they offer factory direct pricing. That gets rid of the middleman and saves you a boatload of cash. All orders over $99 ship for free. All the grills ship for free. And they've brought back old school customer service. They want you to feel like a member of the Rectech family. I saw a statement on uh, social a few weeks ago, Eric, where somebody was getting ready for their 4th of July barbecue. They had a problem with their grill. Something wasn't working right. They hit up Rectech. Rectech overnighted them the replacement. I don't mean the part. I mean a new freaking grill, Eric. These guys are committed to giving you the type of experience you always hoped for. Rectech is a company that we're proud to be in business with because they offer an industry leading bumper to bumper warranty on all of their grills. And oh, by the way, a 30 day money back guarantee. So if you think, oh, that dish off, he's full of malarkey. Try it for yourself. 
And if you don't love it in 30 days, man, that's, I'll give you your money back. Their flagship model, the RT 700 comes with a 40 pound pellet hopper. What does that mean for you? It means you've got 40 hours of continuous cooking time across 702 square inches of cooking space. You're going to find out why everybody recommends Rectech. Just go check it out for yourself at rectech.com. That's R E C T E Q.com. Follow them on social media and you'll see this ain't no game. And we'll see you at the Rectech. Hazard F5, friend of the show who uh, helps us with title chase, writes Had the proposed heel turn for Hogan in 96. Not worked for him, brother. And you went with Sting turning heel. Who would you have put in his role? The big time anti hero role facing off against the NWO in 96, 97. I honestly can't think of anyone else making that story work other than Sting. And of course, we know now Sting was the right call for that role, and, and Hogan did turn heel and it worked out. But it is interesting to think. I mean, I don't think. And although I'm sure somebody's going to Photoshop this, especially for our enhanced video version of our podcast that we drop over at adfreeshows.com. But Hulk Hogan sitting in the rafters in a trench coat painted up like a crow is hilarious. Uh, but I, I don't think that works. I don't think it's just we're swapping sp- spots here. Would you have had another idea for an anti hero? Because that sort of was. The move in 96, 97, 98. It's what we did with Sting. It's what we did with Steve Austin. Uh, what say you? Could anybody else have worked? You know, we didn't, I didn't think about it at that time. So I can't reflect back and say, yeah, well, here's exactly what we were thinking we're right. going to do. If Hulk Hogan wouldn't have turned heel, that, that would be a lie. Um, we didn't think about that. You know, we knew we had Sting if Hulk wasn't going to work and we knew we'd figure it out. That's the honest answer. Now, as I sit here today, you know, what could we have done had that thing played out? That's a different, that's a, that's armchair quarterbacking. Um, that's a different answer. But as we, you know, I think we covered this question a little bit a few minutes ago. You know, I, I think Ric Flair being, you know, other than Sting, who was the face of WCW at the time? It would have had to have been Ric Flair. I, I got to think, I don't mean to cut you off, but I got to think that if, if it does wind up being Sting, you probably would have done Hogan, Savage, Flair as the other three guys to take no, on. Goldberg would, have, Goldberg would have had to bid on that mix. Well, Goldberg wasn't there in 96 is what I'm saying. Oh, that's right. That's right. So I'm just saying from a historically, I'm really glad Hogan turned heel. And I'm not saying this to be a shit disturber and you're going to take it that way. But Hogan would have wanted to beat him. I mean, I just think back to the uncensored you know, right before there where it, there's literally a hundred heels on one side, just the mega powers on the other, just Hogan and Savage. It wouldn't have been as cool. It wouldn't have worked as well, but I could see Savage taking that darker edge. I mean, not too terribly long after this, we would see a Savage sort of switch from the bright neon colors to black and white. And I know it's because he joined the NWO, but Savage had been a heel and he could be a hard edged heel. I don't think he would go the, we know something mean gene routine and still try to make it work as a heel. I, I I'm fascinated by what the macho man could have been in that anti-hero role. That's a great, that, that's a great, and much didn't come to my mind originally, but in terms of depth of character, yeah, you know, to be able to, to make a transition from being, 
you know, the, the glittery surfer sting to becoming the dark broody anti-hero. Yeah. As you pointed out, sting did a masterful job. Who else could have done a masterful job? Rick would, that wouldn't have been a Ric Flair. No, no. Couldn't have done it. He wouldn't have wanted to do it. Just was a bad fit. Hulk could not have pulled it off, you know, because if he, if Hulk was still red and yellow, if he was still babyface Hulk, there was still a fair amount of, you know, retired of Hulk Hogan, the babyface baggage that would have come along with it. That wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Randy is probably the only guy I can think of that had the range as yeah. a character to do this, a similar thing. Wouldn't have been a prototype of Sting. Right. Uh, or a copy of Sting. But Savage had the ability and the range and his character and his talent to take on a, a drastically different anti-hero role. And it would have been believable and it would have been good because Randy was intimidating to a lot of people. Oh yeah. I mean, Randy, you know, the way Randy carried himself could be intimidating if you didn't know him just because he was so intense and people would mistake that intensity for you know anger. Um, it feels but, like stay the fuck away from me as a vibe. But that's probably much. Yeah, pretty much. So, yeah, I, I think Randy would have been a great choice. Fun to think about. Here's an interesting one. One we haven't discussed before from Chris during your time in WWE. What's an aspect of Vince's personality that surprised you? Good question. I think Vince McMahon, the person. Disclaimer here. I don't know Vince real well. Right. I, and I, the last thing I want to do is try to pretend that I do. I don't think a lot of people know Vince real well outside of his immediate family and people that he's very close to in business like Bruce Pritchard and Kevin Dunn and guys like that. Yeah. But that's a very small circle of people. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, I was not one of them, but from my limited time there, in addition to some of the things that I've heard Vince do for people that nobody is, some of it, nobody's ever heard of. Some of it I know firsthand, having been in proximity to certain situations. Um, I think Vince McMahon has a much bigger heart than anybody gives him credit for. It's offset sometimes <laughs> professionally with, you know, the things he says, does, and the way he carries himself. But I think there's a much, there's a much more compassionate person. There's a much more compassionate side of Vince McMahon than most people would realize unless you're in that inner circle or close to it. All right, let's run a timeout right now for our man, Jared, out in East Canton, Ohio. Jared not only listens to the show, but he also went to savewithconrad.com. He left us a five-star review, and he had this to say. I contacted Derek last year, and after looking at my information, we decided to work on my credit a bit and try again in a few months. Derek gave me a few tips that helped increase my score to give me the best rate possible. We're able to knock nearly $200 off of my monthly payments, and I got to skip two payments. It definitely made for a better summer vacation for both me and my family. I'd recommend first family mortgage to anyone looking to refinance. Listen, here's the deal. If you're not having trouble making your house payments, you might wonder 
well, I don't need this service. Here's what I want you to think about. What if we could cut years off of your loan and do it with cheaper monthly payments? We are routinely doing that for listeners just like you all across America. We're licensed in more than 40 states, and you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. In fact, if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. But right now, with rates as low as they are, it's not a matter of if we can save you money. It really is a matter of how much. If you can hear my voice and you're in a 30-year loan, you're overpaying. If you can hear my voice and you have a second mortgage, you're overpaying. If you can hear my voice and you have credit card debt, you're overpaying. Those are the facts. We can help you save money. Don't take my word for it. Go check out our reviews right now at conradreviews.com. And then hurry to savewithconrad.com and find out how much money you can save for free. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. That's savewithconrad.com. Here's a question uh, that uh, is not about wrestling. Guy walks into a bar and wants to know, what's your favorite movie and why? Well, I don't have a favorite movie. Movies to me are like um, music. It depends on, you know, what kind of mood I'm in or what I'm looking for. Um, Tombstone, you know, I, I guess if you just, if I looked at, you know, the movies that I've watched over throughout my life, you know, if, if they were a playlist on my iPhone, which one do I play the most <laughs> that therefore by default, it must be my favorite song. Um, Stevie Nicks stand back is probably my favorite song, but, um, in case anybody was, um, probably tombstone. Yeah. I knew you were going to say that. I just, I've never seen a movie or watched a movie that had so many great lines that were performed so well by such a great combination of actors, cast of actors. So probably tombstone. Mike Eldridge wants to know, since you've been featured multiple times on dark side of the ring, what future topics would you like to see covered on the show? I don't know. I'd have to give that some thought. I have mixed emotions and I love the job that Evan and his team do. I love, I love for the most part, dark side of the ring. Some of it is a little too much for me you know, and I'm, and I'm so conflicted in a way because give me an example. What's too much for you. Um, who was the cat that uh, almost killed David Arquette? Oh, Nick Gage. He just showed up on AEW this past week. Yeah. Just, I just don't think that kind of thing. Number one, it doesn't interest me. I have zero interest in any of that style of wrestling. I think it's bad for the industry in general. Oh. I think it appeals to such a small portion of the audience that the larger portion of the audience is turned off by it. You know, those guys that love that we saw it the other night with Moxley and whatever his name was, where they're you know, just digging in each other with a fork. It's like, all right, cool. Whatever, you know, for me, it's just, I, I don't, I won't watch that kind of stuff. Number one, it's not entertaining. There's nothing magic about it. You know, it's, there's, there's, there's no creativity in it. It's just gore and blood for the sake of gore and blood. And I recognize that's my subjective taste. That's me personally. And I, they're not trying to appeal to me. So I'm not criticizing them, criticizing them, 
them being AEW in this case, for doing it. I'm just telling you how I feel as someone who'd been in the business for a minute and as a viewer. As a viewer, there's nothing there that makes me go, wow, how did they pull that off? Wow, that was really creative. That created an emotion to me that no one has created in a long time. None of that. It's just like, I don't know, whatever. But I also know certain people like it. But when the dark side of the ring focuses too much on that type of a story, um, I think it gives the entire industry a bad name. You know, the, the, the passive wrestling audience, the, the advertising community, the television network executive community, when people see that kind of thing, they walk away with a perception of what professional wrestling is. And that perception becomes harmful in the long run. So I, I get it. I love the storytelling that I see out of, uh, of dark side for the most part, for the vast majority of them. I really, really enjoy them. But when you get too dark like that, I don't know. I just think it's not good for the business long-term overall. But, you know, the Jake Roberts story, um, for example, um, uh, that was dark. That was hard to watch. Yeah, it was. But I don't think it hurt the business. I think Grizzly Smith was exposed. I think in every walk of life, there are judges right now sitting behind a bench that shouldn't be judges. There are doctors that have dark aspects of their personalities and habits and lifestyles that shouldn't be doctors. There are members of the clergy and leaders in the religious community. Same thing. Politicians. Well, you almost got to be kind of a creep to be a politician anymore. Um, it, there, there are those people in all, all walks of life, but it doesn't necessarily make the entire industry look bad. You know, the, the Grizzly Smith episode on dark side was one of them. It was a really, really dark story, but I don't think it hurt the business. Um, well, I, uh, I hate to disappoint you, but this is my wallet and, uh, inside I have a metal card. I'm MDK all fucking day, Eric. I'm gang affiliated. I'm a part of Nick Gage's gang. And, uh, yeah. And he had to, and he had to rip off an NWO logo to do it. Can we not have anything nice anymore, Eric? I'm trying to make you laugh. I'm trying to entertain you. No, that's cool. And I, and I'm, I'm happy for you, man. If you feel good about that, <laughs> listen, I can get you in, man. It's like the NWO. We're out here recruiting all the time. If you want to be a part oh, of the murder, death, kill gang, yeah, I can get I'm you good, in, man. I'm good. Okay. Did you see what happened with him and Matt Cardona this past weekend in GCW? No, no, I missed that one. Amazing. Mm. Mm. What happened? Yeah. It's available on fight. Just saying, huh? it's available on fight. Uh, Lopez wants to know, do you have any marketing books or marketing material that you highly recommend for those who are looking to get into marketing? That's an interesting question. We don't normally get these type of questions for you. Like a real life business question, not wrestling related. Is there a book that was helpful for you and all of your success that you look back and you say, 
you know, I thought I had it all figured out. And then I read this and it totally changed my perspective. I don't think there was a book that I read that had that much of an impact on me, but one that stands out that I read that had the most influence on me and, and, and maybe, you know, had helped change the way I thought about things a little bit. It was a book, and I can't remember the name of the author, but the book is called The Entertainment Economy. And I think it came out around 97, 98. And it really opened up my eyes to, to the business of the entertainment business in a way that I, I hadn't been exposed to before. So that's the only one that I could point you to. Uh, this is uh, something that is a deep cut. Maybe you'll remember JM Wagner wants to know on an old episode of Hogan knows best. You and Jason Hervey were pitching Hogan on an energy drink. Can you tell us the idea and the drink and how many cases you still have in your garage? Yeah, that was a fun experiment. Um, there was a couple guys down in, I, at the time I lived in uh, Arizona and there were a couple guys down in Phoenix, young guys. One of them owned a nightclub, actually owned several nightclubs. Uh, he was from a very wealthy family. And the other one, um, Justin, he was, uh, he was just a hardworking you know, entrepreneur. And they had this energy drink down in the Phoenix area. Now, this is when you know Red Bull was out there. There were one or two others. So the, this was before the energy drink business really, you know, this is before Full Throttle. This is before Monster. This is before a lot of things. Like I said, the only ones, there, there were others, but I think Red Bull was the only one that people really knew off the top of their head. <clears throat> so these guys had an energy drink called Saco. And it was, you know, they did a great job creating the flavor profile for it. It was, you know, if you were into energy drinks, it would kick you in the ass. And it was an easy, easy one to drink. Much, had a much better taste than Red Bull, which still makes me cringe every time I drink it. I still drink it every once in a while, but I just get, you know, um, but they came up with this energy drink called Saco and they were distributing Saco uh, all throughout Arizona. It was a, new, it was a startup company, it was a new company, but they were having a tremendous amount of success with it and they wanted to expand. So one of them came to me and said, Hey, what do you think? You think Hulk Hogan would want his own energy drink? So they would essentially use the same drink, but put it in a Hulk Hogan labeled can, right? So he, Hogan would have his own energy drink. So we came up with the, I went to Hulk and said, here's, here's an opportunity. What do you think? And he liked the idea and little known fact, I did the same thing with WWE at the same time I was helping to launch. Cause I, I got pretty involved in it at that point. So I was, over here on my right side, I was developing the Hulk Hogan energy drink. Over here on my left side, I was meeting with WWE. And this is, I wasn't working there at the time. I was just, I had relationships there. Uh, this was after my run as a talent in 2006 or whatever. So I went to WWE and met with their head of licensing and said, here's the plan. Here's what we'd like to do. And we had a raw energy drink. And once I got WWE on board and I got Hulk Hogan on board, I went down to Arkansas and I pitched it to Walmart and we had Hulk Hogan energy drinks and raw energy drinks and over 3000 Walmarts around the country. Wow. 
So yeah, I did that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Is there one thing Eric you've done in your life? I mean, cause you've, you've lived uh, like uh, enough life for eight guys. I think you're the most interesting man in America. Is there one thing you're particularly proud of? You know, you did TV shows, you did pay-per-views, you did books, you got a big podcast. Now you did energy drinks. Is there what, don't give me some horse shit about, oh, my wife and kids. I mean, professionally, is there one thing professionally where you're like, Hey, this was pretty cool. I think creating the format for nitro. Yeah. I know that's, that's a dry answer because people don't really understand what I mean by format, but in that moment, when I left Ted Turner's office, knowing that I had this challenge that I, that I didn't ask for, but I also knew would define my career (laughs) either good or bad. bad. Yeah. Um, and to work as hard as I did, as smart as I did and take the risks that I took. I'm very, very proud of that. You should be. And when I, when, you know, get into these debates about, you know, what was more important, the NWO or you know, the click you know, or whatever. Um, There's no debate. DX, DX. You know, I, and I, and I, and I believe this, and I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back because it doesn't matter anymore. You know, it just doesn't matter except for to me that I am convinced in my mind and in my heart that we wouldn't be watching Monday night raw or SmackDown today. Had I not created that unique format that became nitro. You think we would have went away. I think so because, because nothing was changing. I mean, just go back and look at raw and the trend for the product prior to nitro prior to, well, really prior to nitro. I don't know, man. Vince is a survivor. I don't know that raw would have went away. I don't know that it would have gone away, but it wouldn't be what we're watching today. No, I don't disagree with that. I think the NWO is, is the spark that created an opportunity for stone cold, Steve Austin to go all the way. And, and, no, and I'm not just talking about creative. I'm not really talking about the creative. In you mean the boom of the business and, and it, it fed everybody for decades. I think making a decision to go live. Okay. That's the kind of, when I say format, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Expanding the backstage area, bringing bringing the backstage that heretofore nobody had really ever seen being part of a show and making it part of the show. That is in its, in its own way at that time was peeling back the curtain and exposing the audience to things within a wrestling show that they had never seen before. They were always curious about, they knew there was a backstage area, what goes on back there and to integrate it into the show and have action taking place outside of the confines of the ring or the proximity near the ring was another element in that format that, that made a massive difference long-term and still exists to this day. I think the spontaneity, you know, that was such a big part of nitro helped change the industry and something that I wish people would do more today. Um, there were so many other things that we did just in the structure of the show. That's what I mean by format for people who aren't familiar with television, the, the outline of the show, the architecture of the show and all of the things that we did differently on nitro 
than it had ever been done before, even before the NWO. Well, you know, that to me was the pivot point. And there were others, and certainly NWO eclipsed it. Right. But had it not been for the change in format and change in presentation, I'm not sure wrestling would be what it is today. I'm not, I'm convinced WWE would have not been able to go public. And if WWE had not gone public, I don't think WWE would be the sh- I don't think it'd be on Fox. Yeah. A lot of things would be different had they not went public for sure. And Just I to- think it all started with that format, not the, not the creative stories within the format, the format itself. To be clear, raw was live, but they would tape shows. So it wasn't live every week, but it wasn't taped every week, but there were some live ones, but I hear your point. Nitro was never taped. Nitro was always live and that spontaneity and Sarsa and, and everything that you've, you know, broken down over the years here on 83 weeks, certainly the difference. Yep. Uh, Kyle says, uh, and boy, Kyle's trying to pick a fight, Eric, you've credited the cruiserweight division with being almost as important for nitro success as the NWO. You also stated, you can't understand why some wrestlers felt like the cruiserweight division was positioned as less than. So with all of that in mind, Eric, what was your favorite cruiserweight pay-per-view main event? You know, it's, it's fun, you know, to hear questions like that from, from trolls and shit the servers because they think they're so smart. You know, they think they're asking that question that is going to fire me up. Um, look, I still believe to this day in my heart <clears throat> and, and in my head, because I, I think there's research to back it up that the cruiserweight division was one of the things that really differentiated WCW from WWE. One of not the most important, but one of the most important, one of a group of things. But there was nobody in the cruiserweight division that had been around the business long enough at a high enough profile to be a main event. It's just a fact. It has nothing to do with the talent. It has to do with the time the talent had been on television. Right. And how long of a following they've had. How many times have you heard me say, and by the way, I dare anybody to prove me wrong, that with the exception of probably Goldberg and Rock, very few people are viable main eventers who hadn't been in the business for 10 or 12 years before they got that shot. And the people that we're bringing in primarily for the cruiserweight division, you know, a lot of them were from Mexico. I'm sorry. They were new to the American audience. A lot of them were guys like Chris Jericho, who, yeah, he was, he had been around the wrestling business for a while and he'd he'd done some great things in Mexico and he did some things in Japan, but the, the, and he worked in ECW for a, for a while, but ECW, you know, nobody really watched it, folks. I'm sorry. It was on at three o'clock in the morning. You know, you had to have a, you had to stand on top of your house wrapped in aluminum foil with a UHF television. <laughs> so it is what it is. These were all people that were very, you know, Eddie Guerrero, you know, again, going back then, big deal in Japan, spent some time in ECW. American audience didn't know him. And that just takes time. So while there were no cruiserweights in the main event, it wasn't for lack of talent and potential. It was for lack of time and the ability to engage the audience over a long enough period of time that the wrestling audience would accept them. Not the, not the, not the 2% little hardcore, you know, wrestling fan base that lives and read it just can't stop thinking and talking about 
how wrestling should be operated the way they think it should be. I'm talking about, you know, out of 5 million people, 4,998,000 of them. Those are the people that need to get to know a character and, and connect to that character over a long enough period of time to be a viable main eventer. And the cruiserweights, when we brought them in, didn't have that. So there's your answer. You realize sometimes when you shit on those uh, diehards, you're shitting on our audience, right? No, not, not all of them are. The, no, not, not all, all of them. them are alike. No, I Just agree the with trolls. That. Pardon the interruption, but I wanted to tell you real quickly about two of the best ways to support 83 Weeks. One is to pick up a shirt from ericbischoff.com. Another is to grab a gimmick from boxagimmicks.com. It's the official store of 83 Weeks. Not only does this support the show financially, but you get to show off your fandom to others, helping spread the word about one of the best podcasts around. So check out ericbischoff.com and boxagimmicks.com. And thank you for listening to 83 Weeks. The man of the nineties has a question, and, uh, this is a good one because I recently watched Kevin Nash sit down with, uh, Steve Austin on the broken skull sessions over on Peacock. And they discussed this at bash of the beach. 96 Hulk Hogan hurls, Randy Anderson over the top rope right after he turns. Then one of the outsiders drops down and makes the three count with Hulk pinning savage. It was Scott Hall. Who's going to make the count. Was there any thought to the referee making the count and then Hulk tossing him after an official win? It's a little thing, but the guys did discuss it. And Nash says, if you listen closely, you can even hear Scott Hall saying, Whoa, don't throw him out. And then of course, Steve and Nash discuss the idea of Hulk Hogan's pin on Savage and that he didn't exactly pin him quote unquote respectfully. He's high up. He's not hooking the leg. He's sort of hot dogging and given their strained relationship at times, I wonder how maybe Savage felt like, okay, it's one thing for me to agree to do this and to take the pin, but for you to pin me this way, maybe you're taking advantage. Maybe it's a little too inside baseball. What say you, Eric, did you ever hear anything about that at all? Not a word. And I think, you know, this is another example of how 25 years later, we're going to talk about something that's been talked about ad nauseum. Yeah. And we're going to find some new way to talk about it. Um, I was with Randy right after it happened. Randy was as happy as everybody else. <laughs> I think that's just no disrespect to Steve and Kevin. I nothing but respect for both of them, but whatever. <laughs> I never heard anything about it. Randy wasn't pissed. I can assure you of that. If he was, he did a great job pretending he wasn't because he was high-fiving and we're all high-fiving and and sharing beers after the fact. So um, I think it's a fun thing to talk about and analyze, you know, 25 years later, but uh, was a non-existent issue at the time. Silvio wants to know what, in your opinion, makes a good manager and why, from your perspective, are there no more managers on the big stages unless they're Paul Heyman or a former wrestling legend guys like Jake, the snake or double a, I think first of all, I mean, look the role of a manager, in my opinion, just mine subjective as it may be is you're, you there, you're filling a void. You're adding to the equation, however you want to call it. In most cases, a manager um, 
is the mouthpiece for a talent who may not be quite as good on the mic or needs to grow and evolve over time. So in the interim, until that talent gets good on the mic, it can really carry a promo by himself or herself. A manager is a great tool to have in your toolbox. Now, what makes a great manager other than the ability to cut a great promo? Um, From my perspective, to get heat. You know, be that manager that nobody can get to. You know, that's what... I hate to sh- always make shit about me, but I can only, ex- I can only identify with things that I've experienced. Right. My role as the mouthpiece for the MWO only worked as long as I could hide behind everybody else. If I could go out and talk shit, talk smack, and be as cocky and smarmy and put myself over bask in the glow of the success that I've created. You know, that was all fine and good. As long as nobody could get a hold of me because <laughs> the audience wanted to see someone get a hold of me. That's why they were watching. They couldn't wait for somebody to finally kick my ass. That was my job to make them want to see somebody kick my ass. But the minute anybody got close, I'd hide behind Kevin Nash. I'd hide behind Hulk Hogan. I'd run like a chicken shit. That's how that works. Um, it's how it worked for me. And it worked really well. And then occasionally, someone would get a hold of me. And the payoff was astronomical. The payoff for Austin was astronomical. It was the same psychology, the same story. You know, that, that match, as much as I am not a wrestler, nobody wanted to see me. I'm talking about with Austin and Montreal. Nobody wanted to see me wrestle. All they want to do is see Austin kick my ass. That's a great manager um, for me. Do, do baby faces need managers? I guess you could probably argue that there's some really great baby faces out there that really aren't great on the mic, but that's a little harder to accomplish because your manager is, you know, taking a lot of credit and, and, and putting himself out there. So, or herself. So for me, a great manager, articulate as fuck, understands psychology has understands the character, not only his or her character, but also the talent's character and really, really is good at making people want to stumble. That's a good. We'll do Otherwise, one to be either just a distraction. We'll do one last one. And then we're going to wrap up this week's ask Eric anything. And I don't want to give you a spoiler, but we've got a big show planned next week. Courtney Johnson says, do you think if John Cena ever turned heel, it could be bigger than Hulk Hogan's heel turn? Only if John was committed to it over a couple of year period of time. I mean, if, if John were to just turn heel in the next pay-per-view and then we don't see John again, nah, I, I don't think that's a big deal. Um, but if John were to turn heel and run with it for 18 months, yeah. Well, and I think that ship has probably sailed. I just don't see. No, I don't either. Yeah, I don't see him sticking around for that long. Every but, time we do these podcasts, Conrad, I I get distracted because you, know, you got Wahoo's headdress up there behind yeah. you, and the air conditioning's going. Yeah, and those little weasels are, that are hanging down, blowing around, dangling, and I keep going. What the hell? You know, 
It's like it's alive. It's like Wahoo waving at me. <laughs> hey, Wahoo. <laughs> well, we're hoping that you're going to yell, hey, Wahoo, next week. When you see what our topic is, no spoilers, but it's going to be a big one. Ladies and gentlemen, stay tuned to get all these shows early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. Of course, last week we celebrated Paul Orndorff, and to celebrate that even further, we watched him and Cactus Jack tear it up over on ad free shows. Eric provided some alternate commentary, gave you some more insight. There's always something happening at ad free shows. Check it out.com. Uh, com. Check it out.com. Listen to me. Check out adfreeshows.com. Google the uh, internet. Yeah. Yeah. Check it out.com and Google the internet, and we'll see you next week. It's been a long morning, and we need more coffee here at 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. All right, real quick, before we get out of here, I got to say it one last time. I want to save you money. Stop what you're doing and rush over to SaveWithConrad.com. This is going to be the best summer ever. Just ask Miguel in Plainsville, Ohio. He left us a five-star review at ConradReviews.com, and it said this. Big thank you to Conrad and his team. I enjoyed my experience working with First Family Mortgage. Jimmy was there. Anytime I had any questions, he was just a text message away. Saving money and refinancing my home couldn't have been any easier. Miguel's saving a whole bunch of cash, and you can too right now. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. And if we can't save you some cash, we won't waste your time. But I do want to mention, this isn't just for refinancing. Maybe you've outgrown your current home or you're tired of throwing your money away on rent. First Family Mortgage can help you get into your next house fast and easy at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. And oh yeah, no house payments for two months. Come on, let's make this the best summer ever with a little summer vacation from house payments at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Woo! John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.